Our scripture reading is Psalm 132, which you can find on page 442 of the Pew Bibles. Please pray with me. O Lord, you have given us your word for a light to shine upon our path. Grant us so to meditate on that word and to follow its teaching, that we may find in it the light that shines more and more until the perfect day. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Psalm 132, A Song of Ascents. Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. He swore an oath to the Lord and made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids, till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your saints sing for joy. For the sake of David, your servant, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation and her saints will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. This is the word of the Lord. Indeed. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Now let me tell you a few short stories. Having been admitted to a psych ward, a young man named Mark found himself grappling with severe anxiety um, and depression, feeling as though it was suffocating him. He was overwhelmed with darkness all around him. As the night grew darker, his fear intensified, and in his desperation, he found himself crying out to God. And in that moment of agony, he found a glimmer of hope and an overwhelming sense of peace. And the staff saw it. They saw it all around him. His hands were clasped in prayer almost all night long. Um, however, as Mark's condition improved over the following days, his fervent prayer began to fade. The once desperate cries turned silent. And he no longer felt that sense of connection with God. Once the height of anxiety subsided, his faith uh, lacked the depth to sustain him, leaving him feeling disillusioned and questioning the authenticity of that spiritual encounter. Was I merely seeking an escape in my moment of need? Amelia, a woman in her 50s, 
had been admitted to the same hospital after a suicide attempt. During her stay, she discovered a small chapel within the hospital, which she became very familiar with. Overwhelmed with feelings of grief and guilt and despair, she entered that temple or that that chapel, seeking a sense of forgiveness and assurance. Tears streaming down her face, people could see it. She poured her heart out, confessing to God, pleading for God's mercy. And for a brief period, Amelia experienced a profound connection with a with. With God, and felt a sense of relief and radical acceptance.、Um, the chapel became her refuge during her time in that ward. However, as her journey to recovery、uh, continued, her visits to that chapel became less frequent, and the guilt that had initially driven her to seek relief, God's forgiveness, started to fade, and that urgency for a connection with God also started to fade. She focused on her healing, her therapy. Her her faith remained、um, pretty stagnant, actually, and and lacked the depth、uh, needed for long-term transformation. Now, though powerful, this she thought was a fleeting moment of solace rather than a foundation for lasting faith. Now, in that same unit, a middle-aged man named John was brought in after experiencing a psychotic episode. He was tormented by hallucinations and delusions that made him believe he was being pursued by a malevolent force.、And、in his darkest moment, he called out for God for protection from the tormenting entities that raged within him. He he developed a ritual-like prayer that he would repeat over and over again until he was so exhausted he just fell asleep. Now, as John began to stabilize on medication, his his visions and his paranoia grad, gradually subsided, and he attributed his recovery to the intervention of a benevolent God, and spoke fervently about and passionately about his his newfound faith with the staff, with the people in the ward. However, the people around him saw that as he was getting better, his religious fervor began to wane. The belief that God. Had delivered him also seemed to lose its strength,、um, and as he returned to daily life and the routine of of therapy, that connection with God became less prominent, and leading others around him to wonder if that faith was merely a response to an overwhelming feeling of the terror he had faced. Now, in each of these stories, individuals experienced intense come to God moments during mental health crises.、Um, however, once The immediate terror subsided. Their faith seemed to lose its depth and intensities. Now, these stories are fictional, but I can assure you that I've seen very similar things in the context of my work in emergency mental health care.、Um, and before we distance ourselves from these stories, know that I could have just as easily imagined stories in different situations.、Um, for example, at war, I could have imagined a battleside conversion. I could have imagined the survivor's promise. The soldiers vowed to God. My grandfather, not a religious person, while he was alive, he vowed to read the entire Bible, cover to cover, if he sold his house. He did sell it. I'm not sure how he, how far he got in the Bible. And when his eyesight started to fade, he got an audio Bible, which, going through his stuff, I realized had never been opened, never been batteries put in it.、Um, you know, many. Individuals experience a religion that offers solace during times of fear that fade away, fades away, like the shadows fade away when the bright sun comes, 
once their fears are alleviated, especially when the routine of everyday life takes over. I want you to think about this, this pattern of seeking God fervently in times of need, but losing connection during calmer times. It's not uncommon. Um, in, in the book by G Eugene Peterson, uh, which our series borrows its name from, a, a long obedience in the same direction, Peterson calls Christians to develop a balanced and mature obedience, which takes a long time. John Calvin said this, he said, true knowledge of God is born out of obedience. Consider that, true, true knowledge of God is born out of obedience. Our faith is lived, if nothing else. An obedience that returns to Jerusalem every year, singing the Psalms of Ascent. An obedience that embraces the historical context of our faith. An obedience that looks forward in hope to God's promises being fulfilled. An obedience that stands firmly in the present moment with a willingness to follow God into the future. This is a long and at times arduous, make no doubt, uh, process, which is why Peterson asserts that many Christians opt for a faith of convenience. A faith of convenience. They seek God fervently in times when there's crisis or fear. It's an effective way of managing their inner life. They turn to God when they're desperate for relief, seeking comfort and help. However, once that immediate need is met, their faith tends to wane and they may not feel the same connection to God that they did in those more crisis-oriented times. Their faith becomes shallow, existing only for that moment of need. Now, Peterson asserts that part of that shallowness is because some individuals tend to forget and, or disregard the historical foundations of our faith. They focus on only the past 10 minutes. Their most recent intercessory prayer their regret from their most recent mistake, the boredom of today, without drawing on the rich history of God's presence and work throughout the generations. And just like those who fail to look behind, some fail to look ahead. And so Peterson says some people may uh, obey certain commandments and rituals without considering the broader implications of their faith journey. They may fail to see the purpose or the direction in their obedience, which can lead to a monotonous and uninspired religious practice. And I'm not sure where you find yourself in at the moment, but the invitation from God is clear. Join the song of the Hebrew pilgrims. Join the song they sang as they journeyed to Jerusalem for their three annual festivals. These, these songs were, that are literal and metaphoric, um, symbolizing a life lived upward to God and progressing in spiritual maturity. Now, Psalm 132, it remembers the history of God's people with the history of the covenant, a reminder that our faith is connected with the broader ongoing plan and work of God in the world. Psalm 132 encourages us to cultivate hope and a vision for the future, to align our obedience with God's promises and his grand design for our lives. Psalm 132 is a living memory for the Hebrew people, a, a theology of Zion and God's promise to the, the dynasty of David. Memory, hope, and steadfastness. Memory, hope, and steadfastness come together to help steer us away from the traps of a shallow faith and evolve into a dynamic and enriching life with God. So let's dive in, shall we? Um, at the widest textual level, if you look at this uh, in your Bibles with me, our psalm can be divided in two parts, verses 1 to 10 and verses 11 to 18. 
Now, verses 1 to 10 focus on remembering the actions and promises of David. They're David-centered. He retrieved the ark and brought it to Jerusalem. He wanted to develop the worship of, of Israel. Um, now, the second half, verses 11 to 18, focus on the actions and promises of God. God promised David an everlasting kingdom with more than enough food, clothing, and an abundance of joy. He, he's chosen Zion to live in. He's chosen David's heir to be uh, on the throne. So we have David's oath in the first half. We have God's oath in the second half. And I'll, I'll discuss after that our response, a response as following David in submission. David's oath, God's oath, our oath. So let's start with David's oath. Actually, the psalm opens up with a petition for the Lord to remember David's hardship, his self-denial. I'll read that in verse 1. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. When we look at uh, Samuel, 2 Samuel 6 and 7, we see David's effort to retrieve the ark, which had been captured by the Philistines. This is the same ark that was constructed during, um, during the time of Moses with the exact dimensions that God had, had required. It was constructed to symbolize God's presence with them in the wilderness, in the tabernacle. But now that Israel had arrived in the promised land, now that the Hebrews had settled in their own homes, fought many battles through the time of the judges, established the monarchy, first with Saul and then David, you can hear that David doesn't feel right returning the ark to a temporary dwelling place. And so we see this in verses uh, 2, two, and, 2 through 5. The, we remember the history where David made a vow to God. He said this in verse 3. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will not allow sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. I mean, there's determination in his voice, single-mindedness. It's like a student studying long hours to excel and to finish their exams, secure a scholarship to go to a, a, a college. It's like an entrepreneur fully uh, committed to building their enterprise, their startup, investing all their time and their resources. It's like a passionate artist focusing solely on perfecting their craft, dedicating hours to painting or, or composing that piece. It's a, like a devoted parent raising their children, prioritizing their child's well-being and growth above everything else. David says, this is my number one priority and I'll allow myself no rest until it happens. But what actually happens is a little different. The prophet Nathan believes it's a good idea initially for David to do this, to build the temple, but he returns. He returns with a message from the Lord saying, don't do it. Stop building. Stop the business. Stop constructing this work of art. Stop studying for this college scholarship. Stop it. Let me decenter you. Let me change the course that you had planned for yourself. Submit, obey. This is not your work to do. You hear the desire and hit this imagery continue in verses 7 and 9. I mean, really feel this. This, these are the words of David. Let us, go in, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. I mean, arise, Lord. That was the language of uh, going into battle, bringing, picking the ark up and bringing it into battle. 
but poetically it's juxtaposed with this idea of a dwelling place or a resting place or a footstool, a, a, a place for work when the day is done, when everything's completed and accomplished, um, a place for victory, a place worthy of God's might, a place that inspires worship, where pastors wear really cool virtue clothes, they wear righteousness, where congregations sing for joy because it's part of their faithful response to God. But no, despite their vow, this, despite David's vow, despite his intent, despite the oath, David does, in fact, right, he says, I will not enter my house. David does, in fact, enter his house, that house which elsewhere says he has made it with cedar columns. David has gone to bed, which I imagine was with sheets of Egyptian cotton. David has allowed sleep to enter his eyes and slumber to his eyelids, despite the fact that he has not found a dwelling place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of, of Jacob. Similarly, Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So we see David's promise. He makes a promise to God. I'm going to do this. And Nathan, with a word from the Lord, says, no, don't do it stop. This isn't my plan for you. And so David submits and obeys and he stops. David's oath, unfulfilled. Let's talk about God's oath in the second half. We move into God's promise. Let me say plainly that the ark is not what everyone thought it was. The ark does not have magical properties. The ark was not a talisman, a magical device that people could use to manipulate God. The ark represented God among the people. And I believe that the ark carried this truth with it for the people. When they saw the ark, they remembered the history that went with it. People brought this ark into battles that God did not sanction, and they lost those battles. Why was the ark in foreign territory to begin with? Well, during a battle with the Philistines, the Israelites brought the, covenant, the Ark of the Covenant into battle, thinking that it would ensure them and protect them. However, this idea of a, the ark as a magical object backfired, and the Philistines captured it. Now, there's a little to and fro. That in a similar instance, the Israelites facing another battle with the Philistines brought the ark into into camp, believing it would guarantee success. They shouted with joy, believing that God had granted them success, and they were defeated once again. And it wasn't simply the Israelites. The Philistines did it as well. During a time when the ark was in their possession, they set up this, the ark as a trophy in their temple next to their god, Dagon. However, on two occasions, they found that their statue of Dagon had fallen face front, right on its face in front of the ark. I mean, these superstitious acts of trying to display their victory over God, it only resulted in the humiliation of their own God's image. Now, after the return of the ark to Israel, King David attempted to move it to Jerusalem, right? In his excitement and his eagerness to have the ark with him, he didn't handle it properly, right? And according to God's commands, it resulted in death, the death of Uzzah, who touched the ark trying to stable it when it was falling. I mean, this shows that, that the ark is not something to be used uh, to enact our own will, our own uh, exerting our own desires or power over the ark. Now, As we think about God's oath to the Israelites, that was more of like a preface. <laughs> uh, 
As we think about God's oath to the Israelites, I mean, here in it, a call to integrate lessons from the biblical story into our own lives, to develop an obedience rooted in history. We read this in verse 11 on. So, the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on the throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statues I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. And in the wider context of God's commitments to David, he promised him a legacy. He promised that his line would continue. This was a promise that he kept. Um, and that this is a promise that kept David from acting on his desires to build the temple. This longing, he promised, and actually we don't get this in this, this verse, but in the wider passage of 2 Samuel 7, which it's taken from, we see that God promised someone else to do the job. One of the descendants, a future monarch on the throne. Now, let me just finish this passage off reading this passage. So from 13 to the end, for the Lord has chosen Zion. His, he has desired it for his dwelling, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. And I'm, I'll just finish it off. Here I will make the, a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. Here it seems that God has dotted his I's, crossed his T's, because of his choice person, David, his location, Zion, were actually embedded in the petition in verses seven to nine. Let me show you this. So look at verse eight. David longs that God would have a resting place. Now look at the language in verse 14. This is my resting place in Zion. Okay, let's go back up to verse nine. David longs for priests to be clothed in righteousness, for joyous songs from the Hebrews. Now let's move down to verse 16. God promises those very things. Clothe the priest with salvation, her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Now let's look at verse 10. There's a petition do not reject your anointed one. And let's go down to verse 17. God promises, here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. And so you see that continuation of language in eight, resting place, nine, clothing for the righteous priests, faithful people sing for joy. In verse 10, you're anointed. You see those very things are part of this language of promise fulfillment in, what, in God's response. What God has promised he will do, but not in, God's uh, not in David's timing, not directly through David, not where David wanted it done. He wanted it done in, in the fields of Jaar and Kiriath Jearim. When we zoom out and consider the practice of this psalm, we see that it was not merely a matter of David's prayer request and a praise for a delayed but answered prayer. We know that this psalm was likely written uh, for the dedication of the temple. Um, by David's immediate son. And we know that because portions of this psalm are actually found in that dedication. There are lines present. Um, and so there's an aspect of fulfillment in this temple being erected in Zion by David's son, um, which would likely be in the minds of, of the first singers of this psalm. We literally read this in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. Um, he has desired it for his dwelling. There's a sense in which this psalm gives 
the pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem a theological base for their journey. We're traveling so far because there's something special about Jerusalem, right? There's something special about the temple. There's something special about the ark. The goal of our pilgrimage is the arrival in the city where God has put our hope. There's something about language fulfillment in, in all of this. But we know enough about the story of Israel to not assert a triumphalist framework around the reign of Solomon or even around the place of the Temple Mount. I mean, in Jerusalem today, the temple is, is a highly contested space. The mount is a highly contested space that it's impossible to hold in a triumphalist, idealistic fervor when you're looking at it. It's, it's a, I mean, a story that's much more complex than that. And so, rightly speaking, there is spotted throughout this psalm forward direction, because this psalm is not simply a petition and an answered prayer. There is forward direction, hope, awaiting fulfillment of memory and hope. I mean, in verse 1, the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will... Oh, sorry, I was just reading 11. Verse 1, Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. I mean, then I'll read in verse 10, for the sake of your servant, David, do not reject your anointed one. In, verses, in verse 11, it reiterates the same thing. In verse 13, no, verse 17, there's future language. Here, I will make a horn grow for David. Um, and, and actually, that future tense carries throughout that second half of uh, the, the whole psalm. I mean, everything God promises is in the future tense here. I, I think there's something that we should say. We should say that discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction, but it's, a, it's an obedience connecting to, connected to a living memory where we see a faith in things that sometimes aren't finished and sometimes aren't settled and sometimes don't land in our lifetime the way that we want them to. I mean, we read a Bible where Abraham wandered in the desert where the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt generation after generation. I think it was 427 years. We, we read about David battling the Philistines. We, we read about the, the state of the Hebrews when Jesus came. The, the religious leaders couldn't see him. We read about Paul and, and his letters again and again to the Corinthian church. Um, we have a, a faith that is directional, but does not sometimes have the periods that we see in our life. And so we need something bigger to hold on to. We need a history that is bigger than the moment that we live in. As a community, connecting back to this memory is a way that we stay sane in a world that makes, wants to make God into a commodity, something that has instant results, something controllable that we can call upon when, when we need something. We're talking about obedience that submits. Submissive obedience by the Christian is, it acts in evidence to the contrary, that, that God's work takes time. I mean, it, it takes a dying of our will, and it's not a linear journey with controllable outcomes. I mean, this psalm urges us to remember our faith's historical foundation to avoid shallow obedience. God's work takes time, and we must submit to his will, following a path of obedience in his grand design, where sometimes he says, don't do this. Sometimes he says, stop this. Sometimes we say, okay, with gritted teeth. The pilgrimage to Jerusalem is a metaphor for our life, a metaphor for 
spiritual maturity, where we are going upward and it may be arduous. It's a life that requires a faith that matures, like Michael. Michael is a man who had a transformative experience while he was in college. He was going through a period of self-discovery and questioning his beliefs and went on a retreat and had a profound encounter with God. But this led him to a deeper place where he went into the Bible to understand his purpose and identity. And this, this is something that, that shaped his outlook on life. We're invited into the, a distinction in this passage between panic-driven obedience and joyful, worshipful obedience, which is something that Sarah knows. Sarah is a woman who faced various challenges of up and ups and downs in life. Um, lots of moments of joy, sorrow, success, failure. She has known her time in a psych facility. And through it all, her faith has been a companion to her. Sarah's faith is not contingent on specific events or emotional extremes. Rather, it, it provides her with a framework for understanding life that can be complex and difficult at times. And her relationship with God has evolved over the years, becoming a, a, a tremendous resource for her resilience um, in her own journey. And we're called to do it embedded in a life of faith surrounded by God's people. Pilgrims on the way, like Jane. Jane grew up in a religious family. And she's always had a deep sense of connection with God. Her faith is a steady presence in her life. And she, she finds comfort and guidance in her prayers and reading the scripture. Yet, um, she regularly engages religious services and is, is embedded in a religious community that helps deepen her relationship with God. As, as we journey in faith, we have to avoid a faith of convenience that only seeks God in moments of crisis and fear. Instead, we're called to develop a, a, a faith rooted in history, an obedience rooted in in memory, a memory that is bigger than us, a memory that sometimes means we have to search through scripture to understand the experience of our ancestors. Because the Hebrews knew that God's promise was greater than the temple, right? We have all this future language here. We have, even at the dedication of the temple by David's heir, we have this looking forward to um, to a time. We have this calling upon God to remember his promises. And I believe we can say with full confidence that God's promise in Psalm 132 finds its fulfillment in Christ. I mean, this Psalm speaks of God's pledge to establish a righteous and eternal kingdom with a descendant of David reigning on the throne. I mean, who does that remind you of? The, the Psalm uh, points to Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah who was a direct descendant of David, let's not forget. Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection are the culmination of God's redemptive plan, establishing a new covenant and a kingdom that transcends earthly boundaries. The hope and expectation expressed in Psalm 132 find their perfect realization in the, in the person and the, the work of Christ. He's the focal point of God's promise. He's the source of of our hope, of all the hope of humanity. They're centered in the work and person of Christ. 
I mean, David desired to build a, a dwelling place for God, but God had a different plan to put his dwelling within flesh. God promised David a legacy, a descendant that would reign forever on the throne. And it is a, a kingdom that does not look like perhaps they thought it would. The promise ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who's the long-awaited Messiah. And I'd say that when we read this today, it shows us the importance of integrating the biblical story into our lives, learning the experience of our ancestors in faith, and developing a strong biblical memory to guide our obedience. It calls us to move beyond panic-driven obedience into something that embraces a deeper understanding of God's work in history. And when we do that, I think that we can say, like in verse 9 and verse 16, may your faithful people sing for joy. I mean, sustained by that promise of God. We can sing about Jesus Christ, the, the King, the eternal King. Um, so let me bid us. Let us be like those who journey to Jerusalem, who seek God's presence with hope and trust and commit ourselves to a long obedience in the same direction. Let's commit ourselves to uh, seeking God's presence with hope and trust throughout our lives, even when we don't get the periods that we hope, and even when we don't get the yeses that we're hoping for. Um, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the life of David. Um, we thank you that out of his joy, he longed to build a dwelling place for you. Um, and we thank you that we can look back and see that his plan was a smaller plan than your plan. Um, your plan took into account our sin and our need for grace. Your plan paved the way for not just a dwelling on earth, but our dwelling in heaven. We thank you for the person of Christ who, who is the answer to this psalm, who so, so, which so um, directly points to the work of Christ. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.